0: Good morning, everybody. I hope that you are doing well. It is Advent season. It is Christmas time, and we are uh, finishing up this morning our uh, study in Advent on the major themes of Advent. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, hope and uh, how a God who loves us dearly gives us great hope. Hope in Christ and hope for a future where there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering or crying. Death will be no more. And then last week, uh, our very own Justin Campbell uh, taught from the scriptures on peace and how the Lord God gives us peace. I'm so grateful for that and reiterate just some of the things that he said, that that we live in a culture in a time that is in many ways anything but peaceful. And we live in a culture that really thrives on disrupting your peace and then offering to give it back. And so you live in a culture, in a time where anxiety is through the roof, uh, where a lack of peace could be said of many, many, many people. And I just want to repeat what Justin said last week. You don't have to live that way. Um, And you might think that if that's you, if that's kind of like a, a normal rhythm of your life that you live in a kind of a state of a lack of peace or anxiety. You don't have to live that way by yourself. That um, there are people that you can talk to, to pray with you, to encourage you, to help you, to care for you well. Um, and so I, I hope and pray. Just, I just want to repeat what I know that he said, uh, which is just an offer to say, if that's you, please tell somebody. Please talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to Rasha. Talk to one of your table leaders. Talk to your parents. So we talked about Hope, we talked about peace, and then today we're talking about joy, um, and in fact, a loving joy. Uh, so, so how is your joy today? It's kind of a weird question, isn't it? Like, how is your joy? How would you define your joy? How would you value or uh, analyze your experience of joy right now? Some of you might just say like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good. My joy is great. Some of you might say, I don't even know how to quantify that. Some of you might say, well, I don't know what it is, but I don't have it. So you might be any different place, all kinds of places, all over the map with joy. But what I want you to do for just a moment is to take stock of the circumstances of your life. Take stock of your life in this last year, maybe. Your personal evaluation of yourself. How do you think of yourself right now? What do you think of your relationships to other people? What do you think about your day-to-day living? Do you come to the end of a day satisfied? Do you come to the end of a day feeling empty? Would someone look at your life and say that you are joyful? I think sometimes we get the idea, especially in your stage of life as students who are unbelievably busy and filled with responsibilities big and small, we we get the idea sometimes that working hard, being obedient, following the rules and other disciplines are supposed to suck the joy out of your life. Like we just have it in our minds that it's okay that I'm not joyful. It's okay that I'm not happy because I'm being obedient. And being obedient is better. And so if it it takes away my joy, if it takes away happiness in my life, well, that's okay because it's worth the obedience. It's worth the busyness. It's worth the work that I'm doing. On the other hand, we often run after other things. We run after desires that we have and they give us pleasure, but they leave us without solid, lasting joy. I mean, like, playing video games all night feels good, right? You're having having fun. You're enjoying something. But the next day, you're probably paying for it when you get up way earlier than you think you should have to get up or You realize that you should have been studying for that test that's today, but you didn't do that. You're going to pay for that one way or the other. It's not lasting joy. It's fleeting. Now, whether we know it or not, you and I as human beings are wired to pursue joy. And we do that through pursuing wonder. All right. So think with me about the idea of wonder for a minute. We think we'd say that things are wonderful, right? How are you doing? I'm just doing, I'm doing wonderfully, right? Oh, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this song wonderful? Full of wonder. Well, what is wonder? What does it mean that you have wonder in your life? We, we use that word all the time. So, so I'll give you an example. When I uh, went on my anniversary trip, we were actually just talking about, it. We mentioned it a little bit a couple of minutes ago at the table at breakfast. Um, there's this, there's this place called Zion National Park, it's out west. And in order to get into the park, you have to drive through this tunnel that's been bored into a mountain, and it's like two miles long. So you're going into this place, it's beautiful, but then you go into darkness for two miles in a tunnel. You have to go slow, and there's this kind of sense of anticipation that comes. Well, when you get outside the other side of that tunnel, you are greeted to this this panorama, this vista of natural beauty that is, it's really hard to compare. It's really hard to describe. It's captivating. It's amazing. It's, it's wonderful. But why is it wonderful? Two things. Number one, you get a sense of the vastness of something in front of you. This is big and I am small. Probably the first time you went and saw the ocean, you felt that way. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you felt that way. There are a lot of different ways that we can perceive vastness. This big, grand thing that makes us small in comparison. That's, that's one of the components of wonder. And the second, of component, the second component of wonder is a need for accommodation. Now, that's kind of a really fancy way of saying you're seeing things that you don't really have a category for yet. And you've got to do some work in your mind and in your heart to make space for what you're experiencing. When you experience vastness and a need for accommodation, you are experiencing wonder. So when you buy that new video game, and you are greeted to a new kind of beauty, a thing that you like to see, and you're trying to figure these things out, this need for accommodation, you are experiencing joy because you're experiencing wonder. We crave wonder because we crave joy. And so in your life and in mine, whether we know it or not, we are constantly on the hunt. We are in the pursuit of joy. This quality, not merely an emotion, something that wells up inside of us, something that marks us, something that we choose to embrace, this state of contentment and gladness and even wonder. And we enjoy things. It's active. So if you have your Bibles, find Psalm 97. Psalm 97. As we think about loving joy, we think about this idea of wonder. I want you to keep those ideas in your mind as we turn to Psalm 97. While you're turning there, just by way of reference, the scriptures don't tell us who wrote Psalm 97. There's a lot of thought that could be David after some kind of victory or something. But but the short answer is we don't know. We don't know who wrote the psalm. So it kind of stands on its own as this kind of timeless declaration. So what I want us to do is read the psalm together. We'll pray. And then there are three ideas about joy that I think find their, their grounding in this psalm for us to discover and understand. And hopefully we'll spend some time discussing What does it mean to have our joy in the right place, to find our joy in the right one, and to see that that's actually part of our design as human beings, that we were wired for joy, we were wired for wonder? So let's read Psalm 97. We're just gonna read the whole thing. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad, cloud and thick darkness are all around him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we love you. We praise you, God. We, we thank you for your grace in our lives. And as we read from this text and learn what it means to have joy in the right place and in the right one, would you, Holy Spirit, captivate our hearts afresh to the joy of the Lord? We pray that you would help me to teach with clarity and for these students and leaders to hear and receive your word, your truth with your power. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. First, kind of running under the hood of this text uh, idea that we need to think about is this. Number one, God is joyful and loves to bring joy to his people. God is Joyful, and he loves to bring joy to his people. This text commands us over and over, along with all creation, to rejoice, to actively exercise joy. Creation begins with a God who eternally delights in himself. The Father delights in the Son and the Spirit. The Son delights in the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit delights in the Father and the the Son. The three persons of the Trinity bless and extol and relish one another in an infinite fountain of joy. They are captivated. It's wonderful. This is massively important because we need to keep that in mind when we move from God to creation. When we move from him to us. There's a man named Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century pastor and theologian in New England. And he wrote a lot of really influential, incredible things. But one of them is called a dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. They don't name books like they used to, right? A dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. And in that book, Edwards is asking the question, If God is God, why did he make anything? If God is eternally delighted in himself, if he's eternally, infinitely satisfied in himself, then why did he make stuff? I mean, he was for eternity good. And now there's something that didn't exist. What, what changed? What, what happened? Why do we have something rather than nothing? And in that book, Edwards claims that God created not because of a lack in himself that needed to be met. So it's not like I'm hungry, I need to go make me some dinner. So I'm going to go and make something that once did not exist, now it exists to fulfill and to satisfy something that was lacking in me. That is often why we create. That is not why God created. God creates, Edwards claims, out of an abundance of love and joy that could be shared by others. So God's decision to create is not out of lack. It's out of abundance. I have so much joy. I have infinite, eternal delight and joy. Oh, that I could share this to others. So I'll make others, not for my sake, but for theirs. He created us so that we might enjoy Him so that we might live in eternal blessing in his presence. It's why David can say, as we heard Brother Al preach from last week in Psalm 16, that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. Because God is a joyful God. Now, how do we tap into that kind of joy? How do we enjoy God? How do we do what we were made to do? We glorify him. Well, you know the answer to this question. We glorify God. We, we see him for who he is and live in right response to it. In other words, we live lives of worship to God. God reveals himself to us. We respond to him in worship. And that loop of knowing him and living in light of him, in that loop, we find ourselves enjoying We don't glorify him as though we are adding to his glory. Again, he doesn't create because of a lack. It's not like God is in nothingness and goes, I need some glory, better create a universe. No, he's he's infinitely glorious. He's infinitely joyful. He's infinitely satisfied in himself. We don't glorify him as though we're adding. No, Edward says it like this. When God spreads his glory... He's not seeking to add to himself. Rather, he is just being himself. He is extending his presence so that those who do not know him and see him might know him and see him. So this joyful God creates all things to live in light of his glorious reign and thus live in a God-entranced state of blessing and joy That's the mission we see given in Genesis 1 where God blesses Adam and Eve. That, that word bless has the connotation of to make joyful. right? So if you go to Matthew chapter 5 and you read the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That word blessed is from the root word charis, which means joy. So literally what Jesus is saying is happy or delighted or joyful are the ones who are oppressed for righteousness sake. Joyful are the ones who mourn. You think like that's kind of paradoxical. That kind of doesn't make any sense. I know. But in those things, as they find their eyes on God, they find themselves with joy. And it's in that Reign of God ruling over creation, blessing creation, the, way, back, way back in the beginning of Genesis 1, where they hear his command to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion, they receive joy. So here's the principle. Joy is found in obedience to God's commands. Joy is found in obedience to God's commands. We have to hear them and we have to obey them to be in the sphere of blessing and joy that God offers. Satan and sin, however, try to tell a different story. So in Psalm 97, in verse one, it says, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the coastlands, the many coastlands be glad. So what the psalmist begins his psalm with is this. Here's the truth about who God is. He is sovereign and Lord over all things, and that should cause you to rejoice. Knowing that, knowing him should lead you to well up with joy that God is the one who is on the throne. But number two, if you're taking notes, sin lies to us and promises a joy it cannot deliver. Sin lies to us and promises a joy it cannot deliver. The voice of the serpent tells us that joy can be found in places other than the presence of God. And so we run headlong into those places. What we learn in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is that we as creatures made by this joyful God are dependent on him for everything, including our joy. And the lie of the serpent in Genesis chapter three is you don't need God to find joy. You can do that all by yourself. You can find the joy that you're looking for in these places that you want to go. You wanna go there and find joy? You'll find it, go find it. You don't need him. That fruit looks delightful to the eyes. It's gonna bring you joy. Take it, eat it. You don't need God for that. We look at our own hearts and see the directions they point us toward. We listen to the world and feel the temptation to believe whatever it's calling out. But look back at our text. What is the end for those who are far from God? For those who stand not in the sphere of blessing from obedience, but who stand in obstinance in their disobedience to the Lord of glory. It's not good. Look at verse 3. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. What about verse 7? All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. So shame, disappointment, destruction, death, judgment. That's the end for those who are not in the presence of God, rejoicing in him. For the unrighteous who do not find themselves upright in heart before God. For the sinner who has disobeyed God's commands, their end is not joy, but destruction and shame and judgment. The text shows us our lack of joy is not fundamentally due to difficult circumstances in life. So you and I have difficulties in our life. We have strained uh, things going on at school, maybe things are hard in a certain class, maybe you have strained relationships with a, a friend or a sibling, or if you're a little bit older, maybe a coworker or a family, another family member, you can have strained relationships at, at school with your teachers, you can have strained relationships with yourself, you can have difficulties medically that you have to deal with and nobody else has to deal with, frustrations in your mind. I mean, there are all sorts of things that you might say, well, I don't have joy because I have this. And what the scriptures are telling you and me is that your joy is not fundamentally wrapped up in what your life is going on, what's going on in your life today, the circumstances of your life today. Fundamentally, your joy is rooted in whether or not you are righteous before God and in his presence, it's because our hearts are attempting to truly enjoy the false promises of sin. Well, if I can just get ahead this way, if I could just achieve these things, if I could just do this thing that I desire, if I could just get revenge on this person, if I could just situate myself in this way, that then I'll have joy, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied. The promise of sin never obtains. It never actually gives you what it promises. It's much like being thirsty and finding salt water and thinking, I'll drink some of that. And you drink the salt water and it makes you more thirsty. And you think, well, if I just drink some more, I'll be less thirsty. And the more you drink, the more thirsty you get. You think that running after this pursuit is going to give you the satisfaction that you crave. But that pursuit is precisely the thing that will keep you from satisfaction. It's why the Bible uses the language of enslavement to sin. You become a slave to sin and you think, oh, if I just do this, I'll be free. If I just do this, I'll be free. If I just go this much farther, I'll be free. If I just go this much farther, I'll be happy. But you're enslaved. You're shackled. So don't miss this point. If we want our hearts to have joy, if we point our hearts at joy, we will seek it but never find it. If you make the aim of your life joy for the sake of joy... You will never find joy. Joy is not the end in itself. What we need is to put our hearts on the pursuit of someone who can bring us back into the presence of the one who is full of joy and promises to make joyful all who are upright in heart before him. We need someone to fill us with wonder and so fill us with joy. We don't pursue joy for the sake of joy. We have to pursue something else. Which leads us to number three, last point. Christ restores our joy now and promises eternal joy forever. In Jesus, for the first time since Adam and Eve in the garden, a man is born who is able to actually hear and obey the word of God. You and I, because of our sin, we cannot hear and obey the word of God on our own. We we, we don't have the capacity to do it, but Jesus was born, born in a manger, born to save the sons of earth as we sing, and he is able. He, He is able because he has no sin. And so he hears God's word and he obeys God's word, and therefore he's able to live in true joy because he constantly lives in the presence of God. And it's why he's so confounding to so many people. He's so confusing to so many people. It's why he says things that you don't expect because he's not looking for a joy he does not have. He lives in the presence of his father. He lives to do what his father tells him to do. And in that, he lives in full joy. Psalm 97 points us in many ways to the main character that the word of God inspired for us to see which is none other than the word of God incarnate. Jesus is the one who reigns over all the earth. The earth will rejoice in him. And although the psalmist says the Lord is hidden in thick clouds and darkness, Jesus is the revelation of God. He's the one in whom we find the glory of God. He will conquer his enemies. He is the light of the world. The world shook in his presence. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. His glory is what is revealed to all the people. Everyone, even the spirits, even the demons who parade around as false gods will worship him. Jesus is the one who lives a life of joy because he lives his life in the presence of his father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this Jesus doesn't just come to earth. He comes to us. This Jesus who lives in fullness of joy before his Father by the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't just come to make things right. He comes to bless. He comes to make you joyful. He comes to fill you with Wonder. Now, don't miss in Christ, we've received priceless gifts that should fill us with wonder and motivate and fuel our joy in this life with no problem. Right? I listed these a few years ago, but it bears repeating. Because of the incarnation of Jesus, we have been freed from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We don't have to live in slavery anymore. We're free, and that alone. She'd give us wonder and joy because of the incarnation. We've been spared the wrath of God because of the incarnation. We have been adopted into God's family. Not only have we missed his punishment, we've received his name. Because of the incarnation, death is no longer a dreadful, eternal thing. Its sting has been removed once and for all. Because of the incarnation, we have a Lord who is like us in every way, who knows what it's like to struggle in this broken world and yet do so with joy. Because of the incarnation, we have the promise of an eternal inheritance. Because of the incarnation, we can have victory over sin in this life today. But make no mistake, Advent is a time of rejoicing in Christ because Christ himself is the gift. We get him. We don't just get the things that come with him. We don't just get freedom from sin and a hope for eternal life and adoption into God's family. We we get all of these benefits and gifts because we get him. We get Christ Because his loving joy blesses us. Now we can do what the psalmist calls for us to do. Rejoice in the Lord and hate evil. We can have true joy from a loving, joyful God because Christ brings us perfectly into his presence. In fact, because of the incarnation, we now have the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. You ask the question, Where can I run from your spirit? As the psalmist asked, the answer is nowhere. And so if the spirit takes up residence in you, dwells in you, abides in you, then that means you live every nanosecond of your life in the presence of God. And if that's true, then access to his joy is always available. You you always have access to the joy of God in Christ. You always have access to be glad in him. You always have access to find your heart satisfied in Christ. Because wherever you go, his spirit goes. You cannot run so far that you have run away from Him. So no matter where you are, if you're in the midst of frustrating patterns of sin, you have not run so far that you have left the Spirit of God behind because you can't. If you're in a season of doubt, where you don't know all the answers to the questions that your mind and heart continues to bubble up with, you have not run so far away that the joy of God cannot be found for you. And if you're nailing it, saying, I'm reading my Bible, I pray, I talk to people about Jesus, I obey my parents, I take out the trash, I do everything that's asked of me, man, I'm kind of awesome. And you find yourself unwittingly filled with self-righteousness, You have not attained a level so high that you have left the Spirit behind. And when your self-righteousness runs out, He's there offering His joy. We can rejoice in all things, knowing from this text that the Lord of joy preserves the lives of His saints and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Does that mean that your life will be easy? Does that mean that 2024 is going to be the easiest year of your life? No. Might we actually experience hardship and pain and disappointment and sorrows and even death? Yes. But our greatest enemy, sin, and our greatest fear, eternal death, have been conquered and removed. And instead, we can now walk in the light of Christ. When the text says, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. We now have that light. We can now walk in the light of Christ, which is ours because we now have his righteousness. We can truly rejoice as this text calls us to do because our new hearts actually are upright before the Lord. Now we can really give thanks to his holy name, we can join with Zion and hear and be glad because the Lord reigns. And the Lord who reigns in heaven came to save sinners like you and me. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning, and has promised to come again. And in him, I hope you see you have an infinite supply, a bottomless well of something wonderful. Something that you will never get to the bottom of. And like me seeing the vista of Zion National Park and going, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. Because who am I to see this beauty this earthly glory for myself to enjoy it. I've been been ushered into a space where I now have access to enjoy being in the presence of something much larger than I am, much grander than I am. But given enough time, I will plumb the depths of the glories of Zion National Park. Given enough time, I will need no more accommodation in my mind. I will have categories for everything there. Given enough time, the wonders of this vista will seem to lose its luster as I master it through my experience and my hikes and my trail running and all the things that would give me mastery over this place. My sense of wonder will subside. But the promise of the gospel is that your sense of wonder in Christ will never subside. The only way it can go is up. The only thing that can happen is for it to grow. The only thing you and I get when we come into the presence of God is more wonder, more vastness, more need for accommodation. I know so much more now in following Jesus than I did when I was your age. And yet, I know far less. Do you understand what I'm saying? I know so much more about God and his gospel and the scriptures and the work of the Spirit and the glories of his church now than I did when I was a youth, your age, sitting in a youth group much like this. I know so much. It's just unbelievable how much I've learned, how much I've grown, how much I've seen, how much I now understand that I didn't understand. And at the same time, I feel so much smaller than I did. I feel so much more needy for God to help me understand. I feel so much more wonder when I think, Jesus came to save sinners like me. And my hope for you, my prayer for you, is that by the power of the Spirit, you might see as we move into this time of discussion that you've been given an invitation by God himself to experience fullness of joy in his presence, to be filled with wonder. And that wonder will do nothing but grow and grow and grow now and forever.